Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Emotional Inheritance of Parenting show. So happy to have you join me. Today's episode is for those of you moms and dads with babies. Our topic, three common myths of infancy. Let's get some clarity on some myths so you can have the facts and use those facts toward nurturing your relationship with your baby and his or her development. My goals for today for this episode are first to share with you three common myths about infancy whose effect is detrimental or at the very least not in the best interest of a baby's overall development. Number two, to demonstrate how these myths negatively affect baby's emotional and brain development. Three, show what the truth is for each of these myths. And four, to give you some helpful tips and advice on how you as moms and dads can apply the truths. So let's begin. Hi, welcome. You're listening to the Emotional Inheritance of Parenting Show, your podcast for raising children with love, mindfulness, and emotional presence. My name is Karemi. I'm a certified conscious parenting coach and a mother, and it's a pleasure to have you join. going to start by describing the three myths that we're going to talk about today. Myth number one, my baby's brain development depends completely on his genes. I have no control over my baby's brain growth. Number two, don't worry about the bad things during her infancy. She's too young to remember anything. Myth number three, sometimes a baby just needs to cry. Let him cry. Let's start with myth number one. My baby's brain development depends completely on his genes. I have no control over my baby's brain growth. Correction. The way a parent, let's say a mom in this case, interacts with her baby will have a profound impact on how the baby's brain develops. Brain development is not just about the genes inherited, and it's also not just about the quality of the breast milk or the formula or the food or about adequate sleep and the stimulation through play or exploration that a baby engages in. A baby's brain development is tremendously impacted by the quality of the relationship the infant develops with his or her mom and dad. Let's say mom in this case. The field of epigenetics explains this really well. Without getting too deep into the science, let me just briefly explain that even though we all inherit genes from our parents, the activation of some of our genes depends in part on the psychological and emotional environment that we grow up in. Dr. Gabor Mate, he's an addiction expert, international speaker, medical doctor, and best-selling author. He describes that genetic predisposition in a human being doesn't mean predetermination. He clarifies, quote, a predisposition increases the risk of something occurring, but it cannot by itself cause it to happen. The key factor is the environment. Genes are activated or turned off by the environment. The family atmosphere in which the child spends the early formative years has a major impact on brain development, end quote. 
And Dr. Daniel Siegel, internationally renowned neuropsychiatrist, describes in his course, Making Sense of Your Life, that, quote, you can show that the attunement of a caregiver, let's say it's a mother, with an infant actually will shape how the infant's brain develops so that that infant develops self-regulatory capacities. So the way a caregiver is interacting with an infant will actually shape the way neurons fire in the moment and then how they fire in that moment, if it's in repeated ways, will become structural changes, end quote. And he goes on to describe other really important things about baby's brain development. But the critical thing to highlight here is that the experiences a baby has during their first year of life and during the first years of life when the brain is growing the most and most rapidly are the ones that will have the most impact on a person's psychological and emotional development without any need for remembering the experiences. So the big takeaway from this myth is that A, you as a parent have a huge influence on your baby's brain development beyond the breast milk, the food, the sleep your baby gets, and the physical environment that you surround your baby in, in terms of toys, exploration, etc. The big takeaway here for us as moms, as parents, is that the emotional environment, the quality of the bond the relationship between you and your baby, your ability to attune to his or her needs, and the ability of other caregivers as well, in a timely and effective manner, will have a tremendous impact on your baby's brain development, on his or her ability, for example, to develop, as Dr. Siegel describes, self-regulatory capacities, so the ability of your baby to regulate his or her emotions later on. A lot of this comes from the first years of life, including and especially from the first year of life. So being there for a baby and a growing child, both physically and emotionally, is essential. The quality of our interactions with our babies and our children literally contribute to the shaping and the structuring of their brain. Isn't that amazing? When I learned about this, I was, I, it was so eye-opening to discover how my relationship with my child was influencing literally what was going on and what is going on inside his brain. And this doesn't mean the whole experience of that first year needs to be perfect. Absolutely not. It's our ability as moms, as parents, to predictably, reliably, habitually be there promptly for the needs of our baby, whether it's to be picked up or changed or fed or just have interaction with others. It's our ability to meet these needs consistently, not always, or the baby's caregiver to meet these needs consistently while we're at work, for example, to be more than a physical caregiver, but an emotional caregiver as well. This is what will greatly contribute to our baby's healthy brain development. And this is the secure attachment that I describe in detail in episode one, so feel free to check that episode out because I go in depth on how you can promote a secure attachment with your baby, starting from infancy and the other types of attachments and what kind of parent-child interactions lead to different emotional outcomes for our children. 
So again, psychological and emotional experiences during infancy greatly influence and actually create structural changes in the baby's brain. And this has been shown by neuroscience, and you can learn more about this in the Harvard University Center on the Developing Child's Resource Library. Actually, I have a link to one of their resources that describes the clarification of this myth in detail. If you want the link, please feel free to email me at info at coachkaremi.com, Karemi with a K. I'm currently working actually on setting up my website to include show notes. So very soon I'll have the resources that I talk about in the podcast on my website directly under each episode. But for now, go ahead and send me an email if you'd like this free resource from the Harvard University Center on the Developing Child at info at coachkaremi.com, Karemi with a K. And I'll also send you a free resource I created for this episode where I list the myths and the truths for each of the myths and a tip or advice on how you can foster your baby's healthy brain development through your relationship with him or her. You can use it as a refrigerator sheet, something to be able to look at easily during this stage of development in which your child is a baby. And again, this clarification of myth number one is in no way intended to create this sort of fear or obsession in us as parents to meet our baby's needs every single time. It is, first of all, impossible, and second, not necessary for us as moms, as parents, to meet our baby's emotional and physical needs all the time, right away. Nobody can do that, nor is it necessary in order for a baby to develop well, as I'm sure you already know. As long as our baby and growing child knows and feels that we'll be there to meet their physical and emotional needs consistently, predictably, reliably, then they'll feel secure. And for details on how to develop this in your relationship with your son, your daughter, from the time that he or she is a baby, please listen to episode one, where I go in detail for how to establish this type of relationship, this secure attachment. Now let's go to myth number two, which is, don't worry about the bad things during her infancy. She's a baby. She's too young to remember anything. Have you guys heard this one before? I have. This is such an important myth to debunk because I've heard some adults saying this about babies who are yelled at for crying or babies who see a lot of fighting in the home during their first year of life or babies in daycare centers who are left in cribs for hours in a row, not when they're napping, when they're awake, without any social interaction. And some adults say that these babies supposedly won't be affected because they won't remember anything. And this is not true. This doesn't mean, again, that a baby needs a perfect environment with zero stress in the home, not at all. What it does mean is that if the predictable environment is one where there's constant fighting or the typical response to a crying baby is a stressful reaction, yelling, or a baby is in a daycare center where they're just left in a crib by themselves for hours, all of this will impact their developing sense of self their sense of safety in the world, and their developing brain, even if they don't remember any of these experiences. And that's because the part of our brain that is responsible for remembering our life experiences, it's called the hippocampus. It doesn't mature until about the second year of life, but this doesn't mean that experiences before that second year of life have no impact on our development, because we have another kind of memory that's called implicit memory. 
And it starts even before we're born, in the last trimester, actually. So there's explicit memory, the things we do remember or recall, life events we remember, which starts around age three, for some children as early as 18 months, but it depends in part on the child. But usually around age three is when explicit or autobiographical memory starts. And there's implicit memory, which begins in the third trimester in the womb. And science has shown that you don't need to remember past events or yourself in those events in order for your experiences to have an impact on you, on the way you see yourself, on the way you see the world, and on what you think about relationships. Dr. Daniel Siegel describes this in a very interesting way. He describes that the effect of our early life experiences, including the experiences we have as babies, shows up throughout our lives. He describes, quote, the attachment experiences are happening early on. They're happening in the first year of life. They're primarily embedded in implicit memory, end quote. So implicit memory is the way the body and our senses register our life experiences. For example, how did your body feel as a baby girl or a baby boy when you were interacting with your mom or when she came home from work? The way your body felt will depend on the interactions you had with your mom, on the signals she was sending through her tone of voice, her gestures, her eye contact, among many other nonverbal signals, not just on her words. Did she show up as feeling annoyed with you, irritated by your wanting physical contact with her? And Dr. Siegel describes this in detail in his books, including how babies' brains soak in a parent's internal emotional state. So two of his books that I highly recommend are The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline. You learn so much from these books in terms of how our responses to our children from the time that they're babies impact their brain development and just their overall development. But going back to implicit memory, it's basically a layer of memory that your body encodes based on the repeated experiences of your earliest years of life. Implicit memory is also at the root of the generalizations that we make about ourselves or the world. For example, if you feel, I need to work to get love, or I'm worthless, or I'm a good person, those generalizations come from the repeated experiences you had as a baby and a young child with mom, dad, or whoever raised you. And the key thing is that these generalizations that we make about ourselves, about the world, they don't feel like they come from something we remember. They don't feel like they're based on something that happened. They feel as though that's just how life is, or that's just who we are. And that's because those experiences weren't integrated in our autobiographical memory. So for example, if at school or at work, a teacher or a supervisor makes a comment about your work as say, needing improvement, or not delivering what you were asked to do. If your implicit memory of how you were made to feel as a baby and as a young child was one of, you should not make mistakes because mistakes constantly irritate mom and she'll get very angry and yell, then as an adolescent or an adult, you'll take that kind of feedback from a teacher or a supervisor at work as, I'm so bad at this, 
or, oh no, I failed. So the feedback will feel catastrophic almost. But if your implicit memory in your earliest experiences, starting from the time you were a baby, reflected patience toward mistakes, empathic limits, feedback toward you on how to do better the next time, then your implicit memory, your internalization of yourself and others will show up in the opposite way as you hear that feedback of needing improvement or not delivering what you were asked to do. You'll see it as a description of your work, not as a rejection of you as a person or as a criticism of who you are. You won't feel like a failure. You'll objectively see that there's an area for you to improve in your work. So implicit memory, which comes from our earliest years, is crucial in how we see ourselves, how we view others, and how we address relationships. And I'll close with this myth by quoting Dr. Gabor Mate in his book, Scattered Minds, quote, of all the environments, the one that most profoundly shapes the human personality is the invisible one, the emotional atmosphere in which the child lives during the critical early years of brain development, end quote. And now for myth number three, which is sometimes a baby just needs to cry, let him cry. Correction, a baby doesn't just need to cry. Crying in itself is not a need. Crying communicates a need. A baby cries to communicate a need because it's the only way they know how. Sure, cooing and looking at us and trying to reach something with their hands are also ways that they communicate. But when a baby cries, it's not because their body just needs to cry. They are communicating a need be it for food or for a hug, for safety if they feel scared, for a diaper change, for sleep, if they're sick, etc. So please, moms, dads, don't let anyone convince you that it's okay to just let them cry and cry because their bodies just need it. And this doesn't mean that a baby needs to immediately be picked up the second they cry. They can develop their gradual ability to deal with frustration when they're older babies and they're in their playpen, for example, or in their crib. And you can't come right away if you're busy in a call, for example. But as I've said before, and as the research shows, it's our baby being able to feel that in his or her home environment, his or her caregivers can be reliably leaned upon for care and emotional soothing. That mom, dad, nanny, her caregivers will predictably, consistently show up promptly to his or her cries. This is what will develop in your baby their ability to feel safe in the world, that they're loved, that their needs matter. And contrary to popular belief, you're not raising a brat or a spoiled child by attending to your baby's cries, which leads me to another common belief, and that is that if you pick up your baby when they're crying because they want to be held, then they'll know how to manipulate you. Have you heard this one? I've heard it so many times. Correction, a human being is neurologically incapable of manipulating from 0 to 12 months of age. The complex task of manipulating a person is not even possible in their brain developmental stage. So rest assured, you are not spoiling your child. You're not raising a brat by picking up your baby when they're crying because they want contact with you. I just want to clarify that this myth that babies just need to cry is not true. 
their bodies don't all of a sudden have a need to bring tears out of their eyes and scream. A cry communicates a need. Erica Komisar, I hope I'm pronouncing her last name right, she's a licensed clinical social worker. She describes in her book called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, she describes that, quote, during her first year, your baby cries because she needs you to provide the things that are necessary to her survival, and she cannot yet comfort herself. That ability is not something a baby is born with. It's something she learns from having her needs met. Crying is the only way she has to communicate what she needs, end quote. So these are the three myths of infancy that I wanted to share with you today and to debunk. And there are others, but I felt these were some of the most important ones to share with you today. So how can we apply these truths that we talked about to support our baby's healthy development and our relationship as a whole? First, let's remember in our day-to-day lives that as parents, we have such an impact on our baby's brain development beyond their food, their sleep, their toys, that the quality of our relationship with them, our soothing, our nonverbal communication toward them is so important for their brain's development. Also, that our emotional connection with our babies is critical for their healthy emotional development. So as best as you can, connect with your baby through play, with nonverbal signals that show your love for them when they're crying, during bath time, when you're feeding them, things that we already know, but that we possibly didn't know the impact that these things have on their brain's development. So just keeping those things in mind in our mundane tasks and our day-to-day normal interactions with our babies, these have such an influence. Also, to keep in mind that what your baby experiences on an emotional level goes beyond your parenting, meaning your interactions with your baby. It also matters if your baby sees a lot of fighting in the home yelling in the home because it's the emotional environment that they're growing up in. It's the air they breathe, which is why, as I clarified in myth number two, it's not just about what we remember. It's what we've lived, what we've witnessed in our home on a day-to-day basis that most impacts our psychological and emotional development. And lastly, focus on your inner growth as a human being. Because your ability to be there emotionally for your baby, to show up as a calm parent, not always, it's not possible, not necessary, but consistently, habitually setting limits empathically, respectfully, soothing them when they cry, your ability to do this will depend on your emotional space within you on whether you see their cries for attention or their interest in interacting as an annoyance or as a simple manifestation of their developmental stage. And our perceptions of our children's behaviors, our baby's behaviors, are largely dependent on our levels of fatigue, our own life experiences, and how we felt during our moments of need as children, and how we've internalized our parents' responses on whether we've made sense of all of that, and also self-care. So self-care and doing the inner work on the emotional level as parents is a key factor in being able to care for our babies and children's emotional needs, not just their physical ones. And self-care is also another topic that I'll address in detail in another episode. 
Did you find this episode helpful? I hope you did. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and I'd greatly appreciate if you leave a review. And remember that if you'd like the resource I created for this episode that lists the myths, the truths for each of those myths, and tips for how to implement those truths, send me an email at info at coachkaremi.com. Karemi with a K. So info at coachkaremi.com. And I'll send you the free resource from the Harvard University Center on the Developing Child as well. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next week.